we, we get asked the question all the time, how do these companies lose properties and then they're continuing to build? It's because typically they're using a CMBS or a non-recourse loan. Um, so it's not affecting their company as a whole long term. There are some protections with the borrowers. So it's what's called a bad boy carve out. And it's essentially what it is. If they're being a bad boy, there could be held recourse. So this is something, you know, Wes, we've, we've experienced it when we crossed paths before um, with a, a previous company. One of my examples would be wire fraud, like somebody that committed wire fraud or misrepresented an appraisal. I worked for a company that no longer is in business, obviously, but they hired people to fill apartments to make it look like they were occupied when they were doing the appraisal process. Now that's an extreme case, but that is an example of a bad boy carve out. Okay. So then the, now the loan could become recourse. Um, so then they can go back on them because they didn't follow the loan doc requirements. Um, so it's this bad boy behavior, um, which gives it the name bad boy carve out. <laughs> Do you know any bad boys who own student housing? Yeah, they're out there. And I've worked with some of them. And once you do work with them, you'll learn how to sniff them out and recognize their bullshit. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Again, welcome to the Student Housing Insight Podcast, where we are putting you in touch with the people who bring student housing to life. I'm your host, Wesley Dees. So a little bit about me in case this is the first time you've heard me, or maybe you just don't know. I've been in the student housing industry for going on 25 years now. And in addition to running Student Housing Insight, I'm also a consultant in the space. My firm is Providential Student Housing. If you ever need assistance or anything related to student housing, please go look us up at ProvidentialStudentHousing.com. So as you heard from that snippet, Today's episode is all about when a property fails, specifically when it fails to pay its debt obligation and the lender takes it over. Yes, we are talking about the receivership and foreclosure process with student housing. Um, You know what? But before we get into that, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor for today's episode, Vector Travel. Let's go to that clip. Do you have fully vacant units on your property that you have mothballed until next semester? If you do, I bet you've thought to yourself, we should list those on Airbnb for game day weekends or for parents visiting their kids. Maybe you're in a college town like Austin or Raleigh or Tallahassee and your city has large festivals and not enough hotel rooms. You know you could lease those units on a nightly or a weekly basis. Providing short-term rentals on platforms like Airbnb can provide a great source of ancillary income, but it takes some, uh, all right, excuse me, it takes a lot of organization. There's the additional setup of providing linens and coffee makers and all the little things that a short-term tenant will expect. Then there's the regulatory and tax issues that could require additional work. More importantly, there's the time and labor to market on all the multiple platforms, handle the reservations and cancellations, the cleaning, and then there's the bookkeeping. All of this turns into a big distraction from the main job at hand, which is operating and leasing your property. That's where Vector Travel comes in. These guys know the short-term rental industry and they know how to relieve all of those burdens from the property manager. 
And best of all, they've become experts in how to do that with student properties. They understand the complexity of mixing travelers with college students. They know it so well, they can quickly identify if a student property is not going to be a good fit for their program. So if you have vacant units, reach out to Vector Travel and have them do a free, no obligation assessment to determine if enrolling your vacant units in their program will be beneficial. Go to VectorStays.com forward slash SHI. Fill out a quick form to receive more information. You will also get the first month service fee waived by going to that specific landing page. Again, that's VectorStays.com forward slash SHI. So uh, let me set up today's episode a little bit. First of all, this isn't just any episode. This is this is a class. We're about to take you to school. Um, and the subject matter, you know, it's, it's not something that is going to be covered in a camp class or an arm class. Uh, for those that don't know, those are designations that, you know, you should be getting. Personally, I, I prefer the... The ARM, the Accredited Residential Manager designation versus the Certified Apartment Manager. Both of them are great, but just my two cents. That's what I would That's what I would suggest to folks. But what we are going to cover in today's episode is probably the most important stuff you are ever going to learn about the business side of student housing. We're going to be talking about the lending world of student housing and what happens when a property can't pay its bills and ultimately can't pay its mortgage. For a site level manager, that can be scary and frustrating. And hey, it's likely not the site manager's fault because, hey, if it is a site manager's fault, that's real easy to fix. And the management company is probably going to do that before anything else. So the interview you're going to hear today is, is actually from a session from our memo web series that we did earlier in the year with Alon Asset Management. Alon is ran by two student housing veterans, April Preby and Brittany Herrenshaw. April and Brittany have really seen it all when it comes to failed student housing properties. They have been, I, I call them the reset crew. They've been that reset crew for so many properties that that became the victims of overbuilt and depressed markets, bad underwriting, and just general bad boy owners who were doing things they, they should not have done. So yeah, we're going to get into that too. So if, if you're not in a place where you can lean into this and take notes, that's fine. Listen to it leisurely, but bookmark it so you can Come back to it when you do need it. And if you know a colleague who is going through receivership uh, or potentially a foreclosure, send them a link to this episode and share it with them. It will offer them a ray of sunshine and I think will probably help them sleep a little better at night. Um, because if you've never gone through this, this can be really scary. All right, let's get to the episode. You guys remember the Great Recession of 2008 to 2010? I know 2020 has been a horrible year, and you may have forgotten the Great Recession um, after all the events of, of 2020. And some of you guys watching this were probably in high school when the Great Recession was, was happening. 
so listen to the old guy for a second, and let's talk about some of the things that happened, not necessarily during the Great Recession, but but specifically after. Uh, during the Great Recession, student housing development just really kind of came to a crawl, but development of student housing came back quick because what happened? A lot of a lot of students decided to stay longer because there weren't jobs, um, so therefore there was a bigger need for housing. But anyway, it came back very quick, especially going into 2011. CMBS loans, which is a term if you're not familiar with, we'll get into it shortly. But they gained a lot of momentum in this sector coming out of the Great Recession. The student housing industry came roaring back in 2012 through 2015. And over those four years, there was over $7.3 billion in just CMBS loans that were made during that time. So why is that important to the discussion we're having today? Because those loans have 10-year maturity dates, meaning in 10 years, the balance of the loan is 100% due and one balloon payment. So from 2022 to 2025, the properties that were financed during that time will have to either refinance or they'll be sold. At the time I got into consulting in 2018, um, at that point in time, the, the number of loans that had defaulted was right around 6%. I, excuse me, I shouldn't say defaulted. Uh, they were defaulted, but it was 30 plus days of, of no payment made up about 6% of those CNBS loans. That has slowly been creeping up since 2018 and is now at 14%, just to give you some kind of idea of, of, of the numbers that we're talking about. So as we get closer and closer to that 7.3 billion maturing between 2022 and 2025, we're going to see the properties that that are performing performing well be refinanced. The ones that are not performing as planned, oh, they stand the chance of defaulting on their loans. As you can imagine, the pandemic has not helped things, especially in the tier 2, tier 3 markets. When a property defaults on its loan, it starts a chain of events to, to rectify that default with the, with the owner and, and the lender to determine if the property needs to, to go into receivership where the lender removes the owner from making day-to-day decisions and pauses the debt obligations. So what does that mean for the management company and specifically the site teams? What does that mean for the residents? Well, I've got the perfect guest here today to, to give us the insight on, on how all of that works. April Preby and Brittany Herenshaw are the co-founders of Alon Asset Management. Before starting Alon, April and Brittany had a ton of experience with other management companies who specialized in managing student housing properties through the receivership process. April and Brittany, welcome to Memo. So guys, we, we met officially a little over a year ago, but we, we quickly realized that we had been crossing each other's paths somewhat indirectly for, for years. There was a, a kinship that I immediately recognized because we've been servicing some of the same properties and, and clients throughout our careers. And that's something that, that happens in probably every industry. Uh, but in student housing, it could be very unique, to, to say the least. Can you guys talk really quick on, on your background and, and what led you guys to starting Alon? Yeah, so I'll, I'll go first. It's with your beauty, Brittany. So um, I started in student housing back in 2005, 2006 as a CA. 
and kind of worked my way through, worked for an owner operator for, for a multitude of years, got my brokerage license, got back into it through receivership. So the company that was taking over a property that Wes, you are very familiar with that company, they were taking over um, a default on the property and had reached out to me and said, Hey, we knew you used to run these properties. What would you like? Would you like to come and work for receivership? At the time I was um, back at a stay at home mom. I didn't really want to work yet. And they told me it's receivership could be six months. So I hopped on board with them, worked for them for about six years. Brittany tagged along two years into it, and I'll let her talk about that. But that broadened our horizon into receivership and REO in regards to student housing. And we did a little bit of everything too, commercial loans, golf courses. But my focus was on student housing and multifamily. Um, with my background, it's hard to find, at least then, it was, it's hard to find someone that understands that asset class and, and willing to learn the receivership and REO side. Um, so I hopped into that. Um, Britt, go ahead. We're I, at you. <laughs> yeah, I started at a, a mom and pop leasing agency, actually at the apartment complex that I was living in at the time, just filing some papers and quickly worked my way up to being the person that had to show the apartments on Saturdays. So that's how I got my uh, start in leasing. When I graduated from college, I was like, oh no, what do I do now? And so I applied for a leasing manager position with a company called Copper Beach, uh, which was a campus crest property. And from there, that's where I started uh, leasing for what would become like owner operator, big box people going forward. And I was working at the same property when April found me. Um, she was looking to fill a leasing manager position at property that had just gone into receiverships. So um, so after a couple of years, April and I uh, moved on to another firm where we were with a private owner operator that had a fairly large portfolio nationwide. And then uh, COVID hit. And that was where we decided that we needed to put our dreams into reality. And we'd always talked about creating our own company. And there was Align Asset Management. It was born right at the end of 2020. And we've really enjoyed working with student housing. And that's, that's kind of where we came from. Yeah. And our primary focus is uh, we, we were reaching out to, to clients when we were starting this and we have built student housing divisions at previous companies. And so what we were approached by by several clients was, hey, we want to start managing student housing assets because we know there's essentially a second recession coming. Um, and we'll get into a little bit about CMBS and how that'll affect it. But we need to have a student housing division. We don't know what to do. Can you come in and consult with us and create a vertical build for our companies? So we're working with a couple of different clients doing that. And we also help with due diligence and things, especially with people that are newer in the student housing space. We both enjoy uh, an education component to that. So teaching others what we know how to do and how to build it best, uh, especially with our kind of our diverse background and what we've done um, with receivership and REO. We've kind of seen it all and, and seen when there's trouble a brewing. Um, and how to avoid those. Uh, so that's primarily our focus with the line. Um, and, you know, it's we've been doing well. We're prepping, unfortunately, for many, I'm prepping for a, a busy season here coming up. So Yeah, and, and I'm glad you mentioned um, the, the training element to it because you, you guys have been training special servicers for the lenders, you know, for, for several years now on the complexity with student housing and why they, you know, they can't just jump, jump into it. Like it's a, you know, conventional multifamily um, or even a hotel and, and treat it like they treat those that are in receivership. So you've done a great job of explaining that to them over the years. We've, you know, had some mutual clients, you know, that we've kind of 
cross paths <laughs> with, as we mentioned earlier. And, you know, I could tell you that the folks that knew you guys and had been working with you guys understood student housing so much better than other clients, uh, you know, that were in the, in the same situation and they were trying to service those loans and, and were really, you know, lost in the weeds. So, so I can't say enough about how well you guys are, are doing that. And a lot of that's transferring over to what we're talking about today and how you guys are presenting this because uh, we've got some slides and things that we'll be showing, but there's even a couple other things, a couple other documents that you and I have traded back and forth that we'll, we'll put below uh, so that, so that the folks can, can download that and, 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 you know, go through that themselves, you know, during their own time to help educate themselves a little bit better. Cause it is, it's amazing to me, especially in student housing at the site level, you know, how many people just have never dealt with this, have never educated themselves on it. And believe me, I, I wish you didn't have to deal with it, <laughs> but we are certainly headed into, into a time where this is, this is just going to be reality. It's been reality for, for a lot of markets, but I think it's, it's definitely going to be the case. And it's really kind of, I hate to say a, a natural part of an evolving industry like student housing has been, but, but it really is. So, so let's jump into it. You know, I think a good place to start is laying some groundwork and, and just basic knowledge about, you know, the lending industry that surrounds purpose-built student housing. As we've discussed in, in prior conversations, you know, property managers in, in student housing typically have very little knowledge of the, of the lending world, and even regional managers and VPs I run into don't understand it very well. And, and let me just say this. If you are in an executive position at a student housing management company and your company is not offering some type of, of training to on-site staff as it relates to the lending industry, you are not serving those staff members well. Um, just you're not. Uh, they need to understand this. Without it, they will not be able to serve their property um, as well as their ownership group to the best of their ability. Um, so, okay, I'm off my soapbox, ladies. <laughs> what are the most common loan types for student housing properties and what are some advantages and disadvantages associated with them? So I think, you know, at first just to kind of relate to everyone. So when you buy a house, what do you do? You go to a mortgage company or a lender, you apply for a loan. There may be a couple different types of loans. Um, there's, you know, rule development, FHA, you know, it's standard conventional. So, you know, it's very similar in the commercial world um, when you're applying for, for a mortgage on a property in, in a sense that you're, there's different types that you can do. Um, obviously, there's going to be more types um, in a commercial loan because there's a lot more dollars involved. So the six most common types that we're going to talk about um, are bank loans, the standard conventional, you're going straight through a bank. The next one would be CMBS, which we're going to talk in more depth today. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, which are um, agency loans, life companies, and then HUD. So um, you probably have heard of those. Life companies are a little bit less frequent. And so we'll get into those a little bit. So um, with the regular standard bank loans, those are going to be LTV, loan to value ratio of 65%. You're going to have a term up to 30 years amortization. Um, depending on the lender, they offer different types of terms, whether it's balloon payments, fixed rates, things like that. They're originated, though, by a bank. Okay, so it's secured by the collateral of the property. And on rare occasions, the banks offer a signatory loan. Brittany, I'll let you go ahead and get into CMBS. 
Yeah, so CMBS is a little bit of a passion of mine. I think Wes and I could talk about these for hours, <laughs> um, but it's my it's my personal favorite loan type because a lot of people like to consider Fannie and Freddie as one of their primary sources. For example, Fannie has a loan to value ratio of 75 to 80%, and they can go anywhere from five to 12 years as far as terms go. And then Freddie is about 80% as well. So when you're, you're looking for a loan type, that's where CMBS comes into play. And that's where the loan to value ratio is approximately 75%. So CMBS stands for um, commercial mortgage backed security. And this loan type is asset based. So it's very specific to the property. And then after uh, originations, and this is where it differs from a lot of the other types of loans, after origination, they're pooled together and sold to a secondary market. So that's where it's a really key, important part of CMBS. And we'll kind of go from there. And, and by pooled together, is that is that pulled together with with other prop with other properties and, and loans from a single from a single investment group, or is it amongst you know investment groups and, and properties kind of all over the place? Yeah, it's all sorts of property types. So it can be hotels, it can be multifamily, it can be commercial, it can be retail, all those kind of things. So they actually just pull a, a very large pack together, and they call them tranches. And we'll get into that too in a little bit. Gotcha. All right. So that, that's CMBS. Tell us a little bit about agency financing with, I think everybody's familiar with the terms Fannie and Freddie, but you know, maybe they need to, to understand a little bit better about what those, those two names even mean. Yeah. So um, Fannie and Freddie are government backed or agency loan types. They're government sponsored. They have a little bit better terms, just like if you would go with an FHA loan on a, or at a mortgage, you're getting a little bit better interest rates. But there's specific requirements that you have to meet, obviously, for those. Um, so the property has to be 80% leased or more to grad or undergrad students. It's, for example, for Fannie Mae. It is a 75 for 80% loan to value ratio, so you can borrow a lot more. And the terms are usually a little bit more favorable than a bank loan or a CBS loan. So you can do a 30-year amortization, 30-year loan on it, principal and interest. So um, with Freddie, very similar. It has a lower loan to cost ratio compared to Fannie. So a little bit favorable in regards to that. They do have floating and fixed term rate options with three, five, seven, or 10 year. But again, government backed, there's credit scores that you have to meet. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about the, the disadvantages to those. Life companies um, or life estates, uh, they're going to be like the group of life insurance companies, things like that, like the teacher's fund, retirement fund, um, that are using to buy um, equity into properties to get a return on their investment. Um, you usually see this in apartment industrial retail office properties. So you don't see it as often. Um, and then HUD, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows HUD. Um, so there's specific requirements for that. You don't really see that in student housing at all, pretty much. Uh, I, of course, because students usually don't meet the HUD requirements, but, but it's there. Um, yeah, I did. I saw, uh, and I and I was a part of a couple of properties that were done through HUD financing post recession. It was kind of an exchange where it it was it was in specific areas where there needed to be. It was a lot like what opportunity zones have been turned into. HUD kind of had this overlay of, hey, if you build in this area, you know, there had to be some. Like, for example, <clears throat> we couldn't do four bedroom, four bath without having a one of the bathrooms. They would have to be accessible from the common area because the thought was that this ever ended up you know, being rented to a family or, or, or something other than students. Then, 
you know, there had to be that ability to, to have a common area access bathroom, right? So, so those are out there for sure. I saw quite a bit of that just right after the recession ended. So, so yeah, anyway. There's a lot of parameters on HUD. You're right. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess if you're getting a, buying a student housing property, um, you usually don't go that route. But yeah, there's, there's obviously opportunities when that may be the case. Um, so just kind of going over some quick vocab um, before we get into the advantages and disadvantages, uh, just because we didn't know what we were talking about either before we got into receivership scenario and, and talking about loans. So there's terms that, uh, that are helpful to know and understand. So there's recourse and non-recourse loans. So a recourse loan is a type of debt in which a lender can hold the borrower personally responsible for paying the debt. Okay. And then non-recourse is when the person isn't held liable, the debt is beyond the pledge collateral of the loan. So obviously non-recourse is pretty beneficial to a borrower. You know, if, if something goes sour, they're not on the hook for it. They take the property back, they're free and clear. So we we get asked the question all the time, how do these companies lose properties and then they're continuing to build? It's because typically they're using a CMBS or a non-recourse loan. Um, so it's not affecting their company as a whole long term. There are some protections with the borrowers. So it's what's called a bad boy carve out. And it's essentially what it is. If they're being a bad boy, there could be held recourse. So this is something, you know, Wes, we've, we've experienced it when we crossed paths before um, with a, a previous company. One of my examples would be wire fraud, like somebody that committed wire fraud or misrepresented an appraisal. I worked for a company that no longer is in business, obviously, but they hired people to fill apartments to make it look like they were occupied when they were doing the appraisal process. Now that's an extreme case, but that is an example of a bad boy carve out. Okay. So then, then now the loan could become recourse. Um, so then they can go back on them because they didn't follow the loan doc requirements. Um, so it's this bad boy behavior, um, which gives it the name bad boy car routes. So we always thought that was really funny and interesting to, to hear that. But um, that's part of a non-recourse loan. So that's pretty much it. You don't get a, a get out of free jail card all the time. If, if you run a property incorrectly, um, you know, to try to get away with things with CMBS loans anyways, or, or um, Fannie Mae and Freddie too, there are those bad boy car routes. Um, the DCSR, some people have heard of it before. Um, Brittany and I, before we got into f- learning anything about financing, we didn't quite understand what that was, but this is debt service coverage ratio. So this is the ratio of operating income to the available debt servicing of interest, principal, taxes, those type of things, and your payments. Um, so it's the benchmark that they use to measure the asset's ability to get enough cash to come in to make sure you're, you're paying the debt payments. So um, if we say something like you're below the DCR, or above the DCR, um, that's what that means. Gotcha. What what do what do you typically see banks? Uh, what's that trigger point within the within the loans for the DCR? One point two five is is the lowest, um, and so it's going to depend on the asset. But that's that's the lowest that at least CMBS will go is one point two five. So yeah, once you fall below that, they really start watching you. Yeah, yeah. cash traps, yeah. things like that. So, so yeah, some of the, the disadvantages, obviously Freddie and Fannie, very favorable. They're really competitive for their pricing. You can get an early rate lock. So, you know, buying a house 30 to 45 days, usually you can close. So the rate locks aren't as big of a deal, but when you're buying a commercial asset, it could take 60 to 180 days to buy a piece of property. And so an early rate lock is important. Um, Some loans, you're not even able to 
get a rate lock until 30 days before closing and you could be six months. So obviously mortgage rates could change quite a bit between that time. So that's an advantage um, with the, the agency backed loans. You have up to an 80% loan to value ratio and they're non-recourse. Freddie, pretty much the same thing, but there's partial term and full term interest that are also available. So if you want a smaller monthly payment, you can go that route for a little bit. You can get supplemental loans, again, non-recourse. A standard bank loan is more rigid to the down payment, your income verification, your credit scores have to be a little bit better. It's like going conventional on a mortgage. There are some, There is some sort of recourse usually for the borrower, shorter amortizations, fixed periods. It's just going to be a stricter type of loan. So if you can go that route, it's usually easier to go with a bank that you know about or companies will use over and over again, but they're harder to get, especially when you're getting into the space. And then going back to Freddie and Fannie, you have to get those loans. You have to be, you know, reputable in the student housing space. Established, yeah. And the very established. Bank loans, a lot of times you'll see um, them finance troubled assets where Fannie and Freddie are looking for a stable track record, a stable borrower, and a stable management company. Gotcha. And then with Life Company, those are really aggressive. They have to be really great assets, likely to do like cash out type of deals. Um, and they really focus on high class assets. Um, so something that's going to hold, you know, they don't want to have big risk, especially when you're yeah. messing with teachers' retirement accounts. So, yeah, I, I was just going to say, I think most most property managers that are in our audience today, if their property is is financed through, you know, a, a life co, they know it because the the asset managers for you know for those groups are. Uh, you know, the, at least the ones that I've worked with, you know, are very intentional of saying, of explaining, hey, this is exactly what, you know, this business is going to support, right? And, and yeah, it's life goes. So you're, you're not going to screw around with something that's high risk. So uh, those are typically some of the, some of the nicer properties within student housing for sure. Yeah, definitely class A. And they're they're much less likely to do like cash out options. So when they when they set a term, it's a long term hold. Gotcha. All right. So disadvantages. Yeah. So um I'll run through Fannie and Freddie. Basically, the biggest thing with Fannie and Freddie, like I was saying before, is that they're really selective on the properties that they choose to finance. They're looking for stable properties. They're also looking for a borrower that has a good track record and a management company that's been successful. So now is not the time to bring in a manager that's managing their first property. So those are the biggest disadvantages with them. Uh, I think it's also important, and we kind of have a, a saying between April and I, that you don't mess with the government. So they're government-backed loans, so you want to be really careful because they do have high expectations and you're expected to meet those. And then as far as bank loans go, for the most part, you see properties financed through bank loans. It's very common. However, they have very rigid down payments. They will actually verify credit scores. When you're doing a signatory loan, um, which is where they put their, their signature on the line to guarantee it, um, they will all check personal credit. So a lot of times people like to be a little bit more removed, and that's where you want to go with another option. And then bank loans also have shorter amortization time periods. Gotcha. So, so those advantages and disadvantages we talked about, you know, kind of the four, I hate to say less common, those are all common, but CMBS were kind of, was kind of the main thing we wanted to deep dive into today. Brittany, can you talk a little bit about the advantages and disadvantages with CMBS? Other than Absolutely. the non-recourse, I think we've already covered that. Absolutely. Yeah. So that is obviously one of the biggest draws, um, but they also have attractive fixed rates. Um, so that's a set 
time period and a set interest rate. Um, the loan to value ratio can go up to 75%. So that's a wide range of loan sizes. There's less scrutiny for borrowers. So it's a little bit easier for someone that has a track record that's not so great to be financed. And the loans are also fully assumable, which means that they could sell them and somebody could take over the loan. So other important thing about CPS is that it can also be combined with mezzanine debt. So that's where you bring on an additional layer of liens. I know that Wes has some good stories about mezzanine uh, when experienced. Um, but I want to run through some really quick disadvantages of CMBS. And that's that there's limited flexibility to deviate from the terms of the loan. So once that's set out at the beginning, um, those are very standard and, and they don't really flex. There's also difficulty in releasing the collateral. Um, so it's, it's hard to dispose of it. Um, because you have to go through so many um, specific processes. And then it can also be expensive to exit. So there are prepayment fees that are associated with that. And then one of the biggest things that you'll find from borrowers that they are disadvantaged to CMBS is that you are required to have reserves on hold. That means that you actually have to have additional funding held back for emergency situations when things go wrong that can actually pull that money the lender can pull that money to pay those bills. And then sometimes mezzanine financing isn't allowed just depending on the loan requirements for that. Gotcha. So we talked about all of all of those different loan types. And, and you know, as I mentioned, a lot of times that covers, you know, 65, maybe up to, to 70%, 75% of, of the loan. And especially with new development, Developers are looking to, to bridge a little bit more to try to get it up to 80%. And a lot of times they go into what's called mezzanine financing. Uh, Brittany, I wanted to ask you a little bit. You've got a great slide here I wanted to, to ask you about because I think it really kind of lays out you know, the, the capital and the, and the rate of risk and everything here. So tell us a little bit about, about the slide. Yeah, so um, the mezzanine loan, which we wanted to highlight specifically here because it's a portion of the capital stack, is fundamentally different from a mortgage loan because the collateral is the equity, not the real estate. So we've kind of been talking about how in typical CMBS, you're putting the property on the line as the collateral. But in this case, it's actually equity um, that's put online for the collateral. So when a mezzanine loan defaults, the mezzanine lender can foreclose on the parent's equity interest in the project as opposed to the property itself. So the foreclosure would not cause any change at the real estate level. Um, the title to the project stays in the same name as the same project owner and the company as it was before. And the mortgage and other real estate documents remain in place. So nothing has changed on the title. However, the impact at the equity level is profound because the purchaser of the equity interest at the mezzanine foreclosure sale, which oftentimes can be the mezzanine lender themselves will purchase at that sale, they get the right to own and control the company that owns the project. So the next best thing to holding the title to the project itself is holding the mezzanine debt. So they are number two in line, and that gives them a lot of rights to the property in the event of a, of a foreclosure sale. Yeah, that's a lot of times you'll see a, a, an equity partner actually, in addition to having the equity piece in, they'll also give a mezzanine uh, loan on it as well. And, and it really comes down to that. So they've, they've really got kind of control there if something goes haywire. So, so yeah, good, good point. So let's, let's talk about the loan origination process. Can you guys just give a, a cliff notes version uh, of what that's like so that the audience kind of understands, you know, who the characters and the players are in that process? Cause I think before we get into talking about receivership, it's important to know who, who those characters are. 
Yeah. So there, this is, we're going to talk about the small piece of the much larger piece because we don't want to get too much in the weeds on this. So the Lorna origination process, you know, just like you would get a house, you find a house you want to buy. Um, you have a loan application and a business plan that you would submit based on the loan type that you're wanting to do. There's different qualifications for that. Um, depending if they need a credit analysis, um, if they're looking at financials, obviously, um, if they need any types of bank statements, you know, depending on the type of loan you're going for. Um, and then there's a deal structure. So they're looking at the risk rating calculations um, and, and how to get the loan approval package um, together. Uh, then they'll get the collateral information. So the appraisal, the property reports, you know, environmental reports, things like that as part of the sale. Um, and then from there, you go into the approval process. So if everything checks out, um, there's the legal documents that are drawn up, any notification of the sale um, to the, the uh, responsible parties. And then um, you have the closing. So loan is funded. You're on the credit. There's a credit file on it. Um, so that's very <laughs> small cliff note version of the loan origination process. Now, there are key participants in this origination, especially when you're for this for this situation, we're going to talk about CVS. That's what Brittany and I are the most familiar with. We are not financial people at all. You know, it may seem like that from what we're talking about. Um, we're just scratching the surface. So we have a good general understanding of this stuff. Um, so the participants in this, you have the borrower. Okay, the borrower is the one that's borrowing the money to buy the property. That's usually an entity. It's not usually one person. Um, you know, if they have mezzanine funding and stuff like that, it's it's responsible parties that are borrowing money. Okay, again, this is one level. This is the first level of this whole you know CMBS process. So that then that borrower becomes the debtor. Okay, they own the property. They have to repay payment. They're responsible for performance of the the asset and the obligations of the loan. And then from there, there's a loan originator or the loan seller. This is the person that actually lends the money up front. And so you, these are the banks that you're considering like KeyBank or Wells Fargo or PNC or, or something like that. What we would know as a, as a bank, that's who they are. And they're the first secured to the loan, the first lien holder on it. So Brittany talked about mezzanine being the second. They're the first lien holder, which is very important. They have like the ultimate say um, on the debt. And then from there, uh, you have a master servicer, which is also known as a primary servicer, depending on how many layers of the loan there are. And the master servicer is the person that's appointed to kind of handle the loan. That could be the loan originator. It just depends on how the debt is um, transferred. Um, so if you've ever got a mortgage on a house and you went through one lender and then all of a sudden you get a notification in the mail saying, hey, your mortgage was sold to this other company, that's essentially kind of what's going on. So it may be the loan originator. It may be the, master, the same as the master servicer. It just kind of depends on the levels of the loan. Um, so the master servicer is, again, collecting all the day-to-day. -day. They're going to want to see, you know, the reports. They're, they're, as long as the loan is being paid off and there's no issues, um, you're dealing with the master servicer typically. Um, so any type of financials that are required on a yearly or quarterly basis, projections, things like that. Now, a special servicer, they're actually appointed at the time the loan is created. Okay, the pool is created. They're part of CMBS. Um, so that's the same time they, they know who the master servicer is, the special servicer is then assigned. You wouldn't deal with the master or the special servicer unless there's an issue with the loan itself. Um, so they're responsible for servicing mortgage loans that are in default in the future. Okay, so it, it, the loan may never go into default, but they're, they're assigned in case that does happen. And then they also have special approval responsibilities for the borrower when there's requests made. Okay, and then here's where it gets interesting. There is the, the B piece. So who's the special servicer's boss? Because there's all these layers. 
they're controlled by the BPs. And we'll get into that. So, Britt, you can the package. Yeah. The package. Before you get into the BPs, I wanted to break down the packaging of the CNBS loans. So I think it's really important to understand the different levels, which could take hours to explain. I'm sure in finance classes, they spend weeks going over this kind of stuff. Um, we wanted to put together a really simple image for you. And that's in regards to all of the loans that are packaged together. So you can see in the the image here where they have a bunch of buyers that come in and they put these loans together into a pool of mortgages. And so you'll see when we're talking about the master servicer servicing this pool, that's what we're talking about. All of these loans that have put in together. And these are, these are not just, again, student housing, multifamily. These are a pool of loans um, that are put together to sell essentially as a package. Like, hey, this is a good investment package. So they're going to have a little bit of everything to mitigate risk. Office, retail, student housing, industrial, yada, yada, yada. So they put these together. And the buyers are essentially buying into these pool loans. Yeah. And I completely get that as a, you know, as a, as a potential investor, I don't want everything in student housing because you may have something like COVID that comes across and, you know, that's same thing with hotels, something like COVID comes across and you're glad you've got, you know, student housing who, you know, relatively to, to hotel investment has, has weathered this much better. So, so yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. And, and then now where does the B piece come in and, and why is it called the B piece? So you'll see this little chart here, you know, A, AAA, AA, A. So the financial institution that are offering these loans to the borrowers are going to initially, that initially fund the loans. So if you go to a, a Wells Fargo, um, they're upfronting the, 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 the loan itself, but then they're packaging basically to get funded from, through these investors. Okay. Cause the money has to come from somewhere. So they package these loans. Um, then they pull the loans together and securitize them. So securitizing just means they're making them into bonds. And when they're bonds, they then have to be rated by agencies. Um, so then they're rated and then um, they're, they're leveled in investment grade. So this is coming from the AA, the AA down to the unrated. Um, so below investment grade is typically going to be the double B and then under. So you can kind of see like the first loss, the last loss, lowest risk. So the A piece has the lowest risk. They're going to be paid back first. And the B has the highest risk, but a higher yielding. So these ratings are based upon the pool's average of the loan to value ratio, the DCRs, how the loans are distributed, property types in the pools, properties, ages, lease expirations, where they're located, um, how big the loans are all those different factors. And so then after they're rated, the bonds are then sold to large investors for prices corresponding to the class of the bonds. And so then once the bonds are sold, the money the lender initially loaned to the borrower is then replenished, less the amount designated for risk retention. And then if those strips are sold, to the, well, unless those strips are sold to the B piece buyers. So here's down here is the B piece. So why would you want to be a B piece, Brittany? <laughs> There's so much risk. Why would you want to be that BPs? Yeah. So the BPs, we also, you'll see it called the controlling class bondholder, um, the, the, or the CCR for short. Um, the CCR can remove the special servicer without cause. Um, they essentially are the special servicer's boss. So they come in and they're able to dictate the modifications of the loans, the foreclosure or the sales of it. They can even accept a discounted payoff. Um, and they can then release ultimately the borrower from the liability of the mortgage. So being the BPs 
has the highest risk, but it also has the most control. Yeah. So they're the B boss. So if we're looking at the layers, the borrower is very small considering the controlling class bondholder. And it's almost impossible. It's not public knowledge to find out who that B piece is. There's very often we work on deals and we never know who the B piece is in this. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of like the, the Charlie's angels is Charlie on the other line. You don't know where he is or who he is, or <laughs> he's just that voice. All right. So that's some terrific base knowledge of, of, you know, the, how all this, you know, comes to be, how all this happens, how these deals get done, um, how they get financed. So let's start talking about defaults a little bit. Um, let's, let's pretend I'm a manager. Let's say my property's seven or eight years old. Um, that means that two or three years ago, the property had permanent financing put in place because most construction loans are, are typically no more than, than five years because um, they're just they're really just created to get the property to a point it should be stabilized. Um, and, and we'll talk about construction loans another day. So, so I'm, you know, two or three years into a new loan, some things become unstable. I think, you know, probably the most common example in a student housing in the student housing world is some kind of, you know, massive amount of new development comes in and, and disrupts things. Right. Uh, I'm sure most people here can, can raise their hand that that's happened to them at some point in time, you know, all of a sudden in that situation, you've got rents that drop or, or worse. You just, you just can't. And this is supposed to be an example about me. We can't <laughs> maintain the, the high occupancy that we're used to, you know, cash is, is typically tight when you get to August due to due to turn and you know let's say my ownership group makes the decision they're not going to pay the mortgage that month what should we expect will will happen next so when we're talking about cmbs default there are three main types of default um there's term maturity and technical default so maturity default is just your loans matured you didn't refinance it in time you didn't pay off the balance in time so that balloon payment has ended and so it's what are you going to do um so that's that's I wouldn't say the most common, but that's number two. Then the term default occurs when the borrower just can't make their payments. They can't make their interest payments. Or they don't have enough funds to do that. And so that that's going to be they defaulted on their mortgage. And typically that to go into special servicing, that takes about 60 days and defaults. And then there's a technical default. So that's going to be when they didn't meet the loan requirements. So it could be, you know, they didn't keep their occupancy permit. The deferred maintenance is so high. They violated some other some other um, requirement on their loan docs. And, and so most commonly, you know, most commonly it's um, occupancy, pre-leasing, deferred maintenance, or some sort of code violations um, that they didn't meet. So, um, and then once you do default, you're current and delinquent. Once you're delinquent 30 days, uh, then you get sent a pre-foreclosure notice from the master servicer. And then that's when it starts becoming transferred to the special servicer. And so the special servicer will either try to work it out um, and, and reconstruct some loan terms or they don't, you know, and then we'll get into that or they can, they, there's some modification. They, they start working it out again, but then there's a chance that they could stay current or they could default again. And then it, it moves forward and, and whether it goes into receivership right away or foreclosure really depends on the loan docs, the courts and the special servicers and master servicers that's involved. So there's a, there's a lot of variables there and actually how the process works. It's not, 
30 days and then this happens, it, it, it varies. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, are there any other type of defaults that you see in, in student housing? I think kind of the example I'm given on my, on my test property uh, or example property is, is probably the most common, as you mentioned, but any, anything else that is kind of out outside of what you just outlined? So deferred maintenance is really big or occupancy pre-leasing. So understand that with CMBS, it's non-recourse. So it's collaterally backed by the property itself. And so like a business, you you have to make sure that's continuing to run effectively. If your business isn't running effectively or adequately, the value drops. And so then your collateral then drops. Um, so sometimes it can be triggered by if they've done an appraisal and the value all of a sudden drops significantly. Um, and then there's a risk to the loan. Um, it could be you didn't charge enough market rent. Obviously, we've had that happen quite often. And so, you know, when you're foreclosing on a single family home, the person walks out and shuts the door. But when it's a business or commercially backed loan like this, the business is the collateral. So you can't just a borrower can't just shut the doors and walk away. Um, so that's when, you know, a receiver may be put in place to prevent that from happening. Um, so that's for us. Anyways, that's the most common is the default alone, or um, they did something to disrupt the, the value of the, the asset itself. Gotcha. All right. So, so again, you know, I'm, I'm that site manager and, and the property wasn't able to make the payment in August. So we're now put on a watch list Still not able to make September's payment because I, you know I'm still waiting on on students to get uh, financial aid distributions. You know all the things that that come up. So we're at that sixty day plus at that point in time. You know it's it's determined that you know the loan is is going to need more than just some type of simple modification, and and the lender decides they need to to step in and assign the property to receivership. Is it time for me to find a new job at that point? No, no, not at all. Unless unless you're not doing a good job, you know, but typically it's not the on-site staff. Very rarely does the staff know what's actually going on. I mean, there's there's some red flags, obviously, when they start telling you you can't buy toilet paper, which yes, we've had, <laughs> had it happen. You know, there's some things that you can look look into, but if you're doing what you can do to keep the, the asset going, you're already really dedicated if you're getting to that point where it is going into a receivership or foreclosure um, situation. Now, with receivership, you're more more likely to be kept in place just because of how a receiver is, is handled. You get a, a court appoints a receiver. And the, and the best way, you know, what we get asked all the time, what is a receiver? So a receiver is, again, appointed. It's a neutral party. The best way we use to describe it is it's the foster mom. So mom and dad are getting divorced and a divorce doesn't happen overnight. So they're going through litigation and trying to figure out how the best is to split. And so there's a foster parent, which is the receiver that's put in charge to protect and maintain the asset while it goes through litigation. So the borrower is no longer responsible for the operation. They do not have control over it. So the receiver is acting on the owner's behalf. So at that point, title hasn't transferred. It is still owned by the borrower, but really who owns anything when you have debt on stuff, but it's, it's still owned by the borrower. And, but they just don't have control over it. So the receiver is acting on the owner's behalf, just like a foster parent would act in the child's behalf. And so they're they're neutral. They don't technically work for the special servicer. They work for the courts. And and so there there is, is a conflict of interest sometimes when a management company is hired by a receiver. Usually we see a receiver management company combo 
And so they have a good working relationship already. Receivers don't like to appoint management companies that they don't work with um, just because it's it, it takes a lot to get that rapport and to understand the basics of receivership. So you don't see it very often. But if it is going into receivership, there's a, a lot more protections for the staff that's on site and, and a lot more room for growth. And that's how Brittany and I started in all of this is we were working in receivership. So no, it's not time to find a new job. It's just put your foot forward and show what you know um, and make sure that you listen to a receiver or the management company so that you know that you're acting in the court's best interest. So there, there is a legality aspect to it, but it's nothing to be scared about. I think the important part is to understand, if it ever happens to you, to understand the processes of it, read what a receivership is if you ever get put in that situation, because it can be very scary, but it is not a foreclosure, not at that point anyways. So it's not like you're going to be locked out and not have a job to come to the next day. So I think it's important to know too, that as the receiver comes in, they typically do terminate the management company, but we're talking about keeping your job as if you would then be absorbed into the new management company. So you'd go through the standard interview process, and be hired on by the new management company. They typically like to keep the staff on site. So, so I may end up becoming employed by a new management company, but if, if I'm operating the property well, the, the, the new management company will, will likely keep me on. So for anybody out there that's, that's currently facing this situation, you know, maybe the receiver hasn't been assigned yet, but you know, you know, it's going that way. This is the time, as long as you feel confident you're doing, you know, a great job and, and that, you know, this is something that, and, and in most situations, I mean, ladies, correct me if, if, if you think I'm wrong on this, most situations where the, the bank decides that, you know, they can't get into uh, the, you know, that a modification is not going to be able to work out or some type of extension. Is it going to fix the issue? They know that it's typically not the on-site staff that causes this issue. It's more of a market issue. Uh, is that what you guys typically see? Yeah. When it comes to the, the three types of defaults, the first one and the second one, the two most common ones are solely dependent upon the borrower. The on-site staff has very little to do with whether they can pay their mortgage on a monthly basis. They're not the ones that are working directly with the lender. It's the third one, which is the technical default, where property managers can make a very big change. And that's that's the occupancy, that's the upkeep, that's the, the marketing. That's where you can come in and make a really big difference to help avoid a technical default and then ultimately keeping your job if the property does go through. And I think, and Brittany can agree with me on this, when we've taken over properties in transition, you know, we always like to keep the on-site staff there. We'd like to give them a chance at least 30 days. There are some receivers that are not like that, that kind of go in guns a-blazing, but that's not the best course of action. And I think that's why our clients like working with us because we're, we're not that way. But, you know, put your be best foot forward. And I think what's important is to be open to change and to be open to suggestion and what what the legalities are of it. Um, when you have a receiver coming in, they know a little bit more about the legalities and the law than you think you may know. So unless you heard it coming from an attorney's mouth, uh, <laughs> like I, would, I wouldn't necessarily say that you know everything. I think um, usually when we have a hard time, it's when we're coming into staff and the staff knows more than, than we do. Um, so be open to learning. Doesn't mean everybody's always right, but um, that's a training component. So be learning to learn willing to learn about, you know, the changes that take place and understand that when it is in receivership and REO, it's not the same as it would be as if it was a owner operator. There, there are some, there are some finesses that you, you have to 
kind of work with. So, so, so let's, you know, let's play that out a little bit again. So, so I'm the property manager. I've been able to stay on through this, through this transition. Right. But my property still has low occupancy and we may need a little bit of money for new amenities in order to, to compete. Heck, you know, I, I may also need to start talking about renovating kitchens. <laughs> How can I get the lender to, to understand that? Or most, uh, I say lender, the receiver. And, and, you know, is that something that's on the receiver's radar when they come in to take a property over? So when we're talking about any type of capital improvement, so the receiver's job is to protect and maintain the asset. It's not to add value. Now, increasing value and adding value are two different things. So you can increase value by what? Increasing occupancy, increasing the price of an amenity or the price of an apartment by updating kitchens. So you kind of have to be a little bit careful. So, but if you explain what could be used don't understand that it may we may not be able to do everything because there are restrictions, court ordered restrictions that you have to abide by, um, and that all parties anytime you do a lot of capital improvements, if they're not life and safety, they have to be approved by all parties. Um, so, can you add a clubhouse? Sure. I've been part of a receivership where we built a three hundred thousand dollar clubhouse in receivership, which is unlikely at times, but to improve the condition in the apartments to increase security, to update lighting, to, you know, fix deferred maintenance. It's how you kind of word it. It's like when you're putting in an insurance claim, it's how you word things and how, how you approach it. So as long as you're open um, and sharing that kind of information, what the goals of the property are, and you have a good relationship with either the receiver or the management company working with the receiver, um, then you can kind of get those goals. So for Brittany and I, receivership is like the golden ticket. It's one of the best things that can happen for a distressed asset. You know, you can see things and do things that you weren't able to do when the property didn't have enough funds to, to get things done and taken care of. And so if you've ever worked at a distressed asset and you're like, I'd like to replace the front doors because they're not latching, but we don't have the money to do it, which is very common. You know, that's, that's some stuff that they like, oh, it's at least it shuts. You're fine, but they're not shutting or, or the key fob system isn't working accurately. Those are things that you can immediately make a change with. Um, it may take some time just depending on the special servicer and the funding that's required for it. Um, and by time, we're talking a couple months, if not. Usually, though, for us, if it's life and safety, it's within a week, um, if yeah. not faster than that. So, yeah, there's a lot of things you can do in receivership. You're not going to be going and building new buildings, obviously. But in student housing, that's why we also like working in receivership because turn is every year. So you you have that ability to make a bigger change faster than if it was in a different type of asset class. Yeah, yeah. And it- a good property manager is aware of all of those things and receivers love ideas and they love feedback. So being aware of them and being able to share those if and when this process begins for you is very important. That, that's such of a, a key point. I mean, I've been involved in, in a couple of situations where, you know, it probably should be in receivership, but the, the owner has kind of taken that last, you know, that last stab at and, and basically saying, to the lender, hey, we're going to change the management company. We feel like our problem is the management company. It's really not. And in some situations, it, it may have been, but in most cases, it's not really the management company. And and so they make this change, and it's kind of a last ditch effort to to make sure that and a you know a story to give to the lender in a lot of ways. 
And so I've been in that situation where I've been on, you know, I've been a part of a company taking over someone in their last ditch effort. And if there's any business development uh, guys and gals that are listening to this right now, you know, you hate even, you, you can recognize it a mile away. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I get you really want to, uh, you want to take that stuff home and try to turn it around and, and have this great story for your management company as well. But I think sometimes the better thing to do is, is to just explain to that owner that, you know, they're in a situation where maybe you're going to be able to help, but likely these are outside forces that are, that are causing this. And a simple change in the management company is probably not going to work. But, but to get back to your point, it, it is really something that it's not necessarily a golden ticket, but when I've been able to come into those situations as a last ditch effort and those managers who've been able to say, you know, almost like in list form, Hey, I need A, B, C, D, and E just to, you know, get this property to a point where I feel good about going to the housing fair and asking people to to sign a lease for next year. Those are the managers that that are are going to be staying around and are going to be helping turn that property around when it does go into receivership. So, so yeah, for those folks that are out there watching this um, and you haven't experienced that, but you're afraid that you may, or you want to make sure that you're prepared, you know, when you do face that, that's the key thing is, is knowing that property and what is going to be able to have the confidence of, of your residents and your prospects. So. If I can add to that, Wes, I think it's important to, um, to do the things that you can control. It doesn't cost a lot of money to do the cleaning. It doesn't cost a lot of money to go around and pick up trash. You may not be able to replace a roof, but can your maintenance guys go out there on a, you know, a weekend or something and touch some paint on doors and things like that. So the things that you can control that are within your powers are the type of things that show not only owners and lenders um, your value, but it also uh, is maybe potentially the golden ticket to keeping your job in the event that this happens. And, and to go off what Brittany said, I think it's important to understand if your property is distressed or you feel like there's some red flags going up, like, hey, something's not right. Don't give up. If you're at that property and you care, continue to show that you care because there's a lot of things going behind the scenes um, that you don't necessarily know. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many properties because we like to think we look young that Brittany and I have gone physically to in shops before we take over in receivership and we scope out the staff and they do it. And, you know, there's a lot of young asset managers now that could pass for college kids easily. <laughs> and so they're doing the same thing. They're going and shopping and scoping and you would never know. And so, you know, there's times we've walked right in and we've got pointed at, I know who they are, you know, and oh shoot, did I say the wrong <laughs> thing? You know, so keep that in mind. Like just keep showing and keep putting forth an effort because it's only going to make you look better as a manager. And I know it's super frustrating. And Brittany and I have both been there. I mean, we talk about the companies we worked for in 2012 out of the top 20, 10 of those student housing companies are no longer in business. So it, it does happen. Um, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunately it's frequent and it's just kind of growth in the industry. Um, mistakes are made and things like that, but show uh, as an on-site staff, you're very valuable. And as long as you kind of put your effort in, there's nothing you need to worry about. 
Well, ladies, thanks so much for, for your time today and, and explaining all of this. I know our, our audience is certainly better for it. If we've got someone in, in our audience who you know, may have more questions or maybe they've got an owner that they want to refer to, you, um, <laughs> how, how is the best way for them to get in touch with you? So, and Wes, if you wanted to pop up, we have a slide that has our email and phone number on it. You can also scope out alignam.com um, and Brittany's eyes contact information is right on there. Also, you can shoot us a message. So uh, we love to network. We love to talk to people and, and tell them what we know. That's kind of the educators in us. So yeah, we're, we're happy to chat with whomever. So. Call, text, send a carrier pigeon. <laughs> find something. We're happy to chat with you. Well, and, and you guys are uh, both located in the uh, in, in the Midwest, so Central Time Zone is applied, and uh, which is kind of easy for everybody on on both coasts. So, so love what you guys are doing. Thanks for spending the time with us, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Wes.